1: Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's former chief aide, gave some bombastic testimony to Parliament this week, claiming that the government's actions caused unnecessary deaths from COVID-19.
2: Tens of thousands of people died who didn't need to die. There's absolutely no excuse for delaying that because a lot of the reasons for why that happened are still in place now. Look at the whole debate about variants and whatnot. This has to be honestly explained.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be focusing on the seven hours of testimony from the man who was at Boris Johnson's right-hand side for much of the pandemic. We'll unpack the claims, what should and shouldn't be believed, and how damaging all this was for the Prime Minister and his government. Political editor George Parker and chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will guide us through... And later, we'll be examining the UK's cuts to the overseas aid budget and whether this has harmed the nation's reputation abroad. Is there anger or disappointment? And what does it say about global Britain? Our political correspondent, Jasmine cameron Schleshi will discuss with Andrew Mitchell, the former International Development Secretary. Well, George and Robert, welcome back. It's been quite the week. Good yeah, morning, Seb. Hi, Seb. So obviously we spent all day Wednesday glued to our screens, not moving an inch for seven hours while Dominic Cummings was talking about the events of March 2020 um, in the run up to the first lockdown and when the pandemic took flight. And I was trying to remember what I was actually doing in March 2020, which is I remember visiting Durham with some old university friends at the end of February. But March is a bit of a blur as this whole thing unfolded before us. George, do you have any particular memories of that time? Well, I remember watching the news and being
3: mildly concerned, but I have to confess that I was one of those people who went (laughs) went on a skiing holiday in February to France, which in, in retrospect was a fairly reckless thing to do, I suppose. But certainly there was a sense of impending concern but I remember going to press conferences in Downing Street as late, I think, as sort of March the 12th, so about 10 or 11 days before the lockdown. where the scientists still seem to be fairly sanguine about the whole thing. We're talking about advising people not to go on cruises, you know, when the storm was approaching. So it was a kind of very strange period, I think,
1: in national life. I remember going to the pub for a friend's birthday just a couple of days or maybe a week or so before lockdown came in. And actually, three people at that pub all came down with coronavirus, one of them very seriously, in fact. So I look back on it. It was sort of a bit of a spooky time. What about you, Robert?
2: I think my, my
4: main memory from just before lockdown, I went up to Birmingham to do a big magazine profile piece of Andy Street, who's now been reelected as Mayor of the Midlands. And it became clear to me at the time, it was a piece just before the launch of the election campaign for the mayors in 2020. And it became increasingly clear to me in the two days I spent that these elections were going to be cancelled. And this piece was going to be com- have to be completely rethought. And the other thing I remember of it was being in my hotel room in between the days talking to him and, and his staff and getting called by a very senior colleague after the herd immunity story emerged. And the person saying, are they completely insane? Do you understand how many people will die if we do this? And sitting talking to them about this and trying to work out why if we completely inexpert people could see this, they didn't seem to be able to.
1: Well, let's get into the main story of the week where we can explore that very question. Dominic Cummings has been on a revenge mission. After falling out with Boris Johnson last November, his former chief advisor has kept out of the public headlines until this week, when he made a series of strong allegations about the government's handling of the pandemic. Lying, incompetence, lack of preparation, inept leadership were all part of what he levelled at the prime minister. Cummings' allegations were summed up by his core accusation that Johnson, the man he helped get elected to number 10, was not up to the job.
2: Fundamentally, I regarded him as unfit for the job, and I was trying to create a structure around him to try and stop what I thought were extremely bad decisions and push other things through against his wishes.
1: So, George, it's hard to know where to begin with this. Obviously, there was so much there, but overall, how damaging do you think the things were Mr. Cummings said, and what immediate impact is it going to have on the government and Westminster?
3: Well, the first thing to say is it was extraordinary, wasn't it? Seb, you, I, and Jasmine, our colleague, were sitting here at relay on transcribing this lurid, Baroque, brutal piece of evidence by Dominic Cummings over seven hours. He mentioned the film Independence Day. It was more like a Tarantino movie, wasn't it? It was just so brutal and violent and political casualties all over the place. But I mean, you can't possibly conclude after listening to that, that people are going to come away undamaged by it. And you mentioned that it was Boris Johnson, but particularly Matt Hancock, the health secretary who were very much in Dominic Cummings's sights in the whole thing. The litany of mistakes was well known, but nevertheless was given colour and real sort of immediacy, I think, by Dominic Cummings' evidence. The question is, how much damage does it do in the long term? Well, I've always been a little bit sceptical about this, I have to say, because there are a couple of things. One is Dominic Cummings, a flawed witness. Well, obviously he is. He's an extremely unpopular character in the country. And his uh, ability to tell the whole truth was certainly called into question by many people after his account of his trip to Barnard Castle in 2020. So he was a flawed witness. And I think the other thing that Boris Johnson will cling to is the fact that a lot of this stuff is already baked into the cake, if you like. The people already know that the government made a number of serious mistakes in 2020. But it's a recurring theme when you talk to Labour MPs who knocked on doors in this month's local elections. And the common refrain from people on the doorstep is, well, would you lot have done any better? And the third thing I say is that this is something that happened last year. The government will carry on saying a public inquiry will pour all over this in great detail. But I think the public have moved on from last year and they're hoping against hope that we'll soon get into a situation where lives will return to normal after this nightmare. And I suspect Boris Johnson will end up sustaining less long term damage than
1: one might have thought immediately on uh, Wednesday afternoon. Robert, we're going to go into the actual allegations in one moment. But of course, one thing to remember about Mr. Cummings is that he's a man in some ways that has very little to lose because A, he's probably not going to work in government again, no matter how much he avoided criticising Rishi Sunak in a blatant attempt to curry favour with the Chancellor. Allies of Mr. Cummings say that he would like to see him in Downing Street instead. Also, his personal situation means he's not reliant on government for another job. So in some ways, you could say, well, isn't he just telling the Whole unvarnished truth? I think he's telling the truth as he saw it. George referenced Independence Day.
4: There were moments during his testimony where I wondered if he saw himself rather as Keanu Reeves in the film Speed. I'm the only person who can stop it blowing up. Somebody needed to tap him on the shoulder and say, mate, actually, everyone else thinks you're Dennis Hopper. So I think he has a truth that he wants to tell. And I think he absolutely believes what he's saying. But one of the fundamental problems he has, and George sort of alluded to this, is that unlike a lot of things that become matters of public inquiries, We all lived this pandemic and we all understand roughly what happened. And although, as George says, there were lots of detail in what he said, there was no shock fact that changed everything we thought about how things worked. And people, they're not looking for extra secrets to emerge.
1: Now, let's begin with the criticisms about the Prime Minister, George, because obviously, Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson have worked together for a long time. They've known each other since the days of the Vote Leave campaign in the Brexit referendum. And of course, Dominic Cummings came into government in July 2019 and was a key part of the re-election efforts when Boris Johnson returned with that thumping majority. And you have to say to yourself, why did he suddenly just decide at that moment he was not competent to be Prime Minister? Why didn't he realise after four months of working within Downing Street? Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson are- almost polar opposites, aren't they, when it comes to personality
3: types. Boris Johnson's impulsive and doesn't really care very much about detail, whereas Dominic Cummings likes to think of himself at least as a sort of analytical, data-driven kind of person. But I think Dominic Cummings always saw Boris Johnson as helpful in developing his project. So in the Leave campaign in 2016, you had a very powerful combination of Dominic Cummings and his use of data and very shrewd understanding of campaign tactics, but he would never have won that referendum had it not been for Boris Johnson's huge popular appeal and ability to communicate with people. So I think Dominic Cummings always saw Boris Johnson as a useful vehicle for the kind of things he wanted to do, including gaining power. You know, I don't think Dominic Cummings ever thought that Boris Johnson was sort of a particularly reliable or focused politician or someone who could be relied upon to take a decision and stick to it. But I think in the end, and this came through very clearly in the evidence that he gave on Wednesday, it became obvious that Dominic Cummings held Boris Johnson and his judgment in such contempt that he expected to be basically running the country himself. At one point, he rather a giveaway. He said that maybe the country needed a dictator. And to be honest, the person he had in mind there was himself, not Boris Johnson. And as soon as Boris Johnson made it clear that he wasn't going to let Dominic Cummings have total control over him, who saw him and decisions that's when it all started to fall apart. But it was a ludicrous situation where an advisor could think that he could have such power inside Downing Street in a functioning Western democracy.
4: And I think the other point that some people have made is that Dominic Cummings sees the world in such total shades of black and white. If you listen to his evidence, everybody he liked was completely brilliant and never got anything wrong. He never criticised the people he was pro, be it Rishi Sunak, Michael Gove, or some of the other people who were working behind the scenes. Everybody he dislikes is absolutely uniformly awful. You didn't come across any moments in his testimony that I can recall where he said, I hadn't normally rated them, but they did really well on this. Dominic Cummings sees everything in such total
1: shades. And of course, we should remember as well that Dominic Cummings had huge amounts of power when he was in Downing Street. That when Boris Johnson asked him to go and work for him in the summer of 2019, he set out a series of conditions, which we've reported and others have too. And he had unfettered choice in who could be special advisors and his ability to hire and fire people. And across government in Downing Street as well, all the key positions were filled by allies of Dominic Cummings. And we should remember in February 2020, when Boris Johnson was asked to choose between his chancellor, Sajid Javid, and Dominic Cummings, he chose Dominic Cummings, and Sajid Javid was ousted as, you know, in theory, the second most powerful person in the government. So there was this tension throughout the hearing, wasn't there? That really it was, I was in there, but I wasn't really that powerful, and if only people listened to me. But everything we've written, George, does suggest he was incredibly powerful. Well, he was. I don't think there's any doubt about that. There was a really telling moment in the
3: testimony. Where he said that he, Dominic Cummings, appointed Simon Case to succeed Mark Sebwell as cabinet secretary. Now, this is one of the most important appointments a prime minister makes choosing the person who runs the civil service, the most senior civil servant and advisor in Downing Street. And Dominic Cummings, a special advisor, said that he made that appointment. And it gave you a glimpse into the kind of control that Dominic Cummings had and expected to have in Downing Street. And of course, in the end, there was a big power struggle between him and the Prime Minister's fiancée, Carrie Simons, about who should have access to the Prime Minister's ear. And in the end, Carrie Simons won that power struggle in November. But you're right. I mean, there was this tension between the idea that he was very powerful. And at the same time, he was almost presenting himself as a sort of commentator on what was going on. And I think probably the best way to summarise the way that Dominic Cummings presented himself in this was that he apologised at the start of the seven hours of evidence, which I thought was a sensible thing for him to do, for mistakes that everyone, including himself, made. But when you cut through it, the mistake he was acknowledging making was the fact that he was so slow to realise that everyone else was foolish and making serious mistakes. So he apologised, but then went on to say, look,
1: I was the first one to spot that everyone else was wrong. Now, Robert, let's move on to his second target, which was Matt Hancock. Dominic Cummings said that, in fact, the health secretary should have been sacked multiple times over.
2: I think that the Secretary of State for Health should have been fired for at least... 15, 20 things. I think there's no doubt at all that many senior people um, performed far, far disastrously below the standards which the country has a right to expect. I think that the Secretary of State for Health is certainly one of those people. I said repeatedly to the Prime Minister that he should be fired. So did the Cabinet Secretary. So did many other senior people. Why do you think, Robert, there was so much ire pushed towards Matt Hancock there? Because
1: obviously he's been on the front line of the COVID response for sure. But basically, Dominic Cummings was alleging that Matt Hancock had lied to the Prime Minister, he'd lied to other government ministers. And he said that Mark Sedra, who at that point was Cabinet Secretary, had lost faith in Mr. Hancock's ability to tell the truth there. Yeah, I mean, it was very striking how he
4: was possibly even a bigger target than the Prime Minister during these hearings. He was the one person who Dominic Cummings was clearly out to destroy. And actually, if you think back to the early months of the pandemic, there was a point where Matt Hancock did appear to be being set up as the fall guy for everything that went wrong. And there were, of course, lots of problems in the health establishment. The health service was very slow in some areas, test and trace, personal protective equipment, the people going into care homes, there were a lot of early mistakes. And some of these were down to fiefdoms and inherited errors. And there was a feeling that Matt Hancock was much too protective of those people and of his department. There was also, if you remember, the attempt by Michael Gove to take over certain areas of health. And I think it wasn't till we get well into the second lockdown that people begin to say, actually, Hancock's been on the right side of this argument. He's the one who has been consistently pushing lockdown when others have been pushing back. And he emerges a little bit better from this crisis. But there's no question there was a moment where he hung in the balance. And I think the main reason he didn't get pushed out mid-pandemic is because to sack your health secretary in the middle of a health crisis is essentially to admit that you've messed up so terribly that you had to do this. And that obviously reflects badly on the government. I mean, it throws a problem for them down the line because it's quite well known they would like to move Matt Hancock in the next reshuffle. Michael Gove's name has been touted among others as potential next health secretary. This makes it in a way both easier and more difficult, because Boris Johnson now has ammo to make the move. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to look like he's being pushed around by Dominic Cummings. And it was very interesting after the hearings to see Boris Johnson initially not being prepared to throw his full confidence behind Matt Hancock when asked about him on television. But then later on in the day, Downing Street puts out a statement saying he does have full
1: confidence in him. So you can see the prime minister himself is wavering on this issue. And I think George, like the hardest accusation that Mr. Cummings put forward was to do with care homes, and this directly linked to the health secretary, because one of the disasters of the coronavirus pandemic was that thousands of elderly residents were put back into care homes without being tested for coronavirus, which saw the virus sweep through these institutions like wildfire and caused many thousands of unnecessary deaths. And obviously, this happened in Wales, it happened in Scotland, and it's happened in many other countries around the world. But what Cummings was alleging in this committee was that Matt Hancock had actually lied to ministers and said that people were being tested and they weren't. And that's probably the most incendiary thing he said.
3: Yes, I mean, it's a damning criticism, really, of Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock admitted there were two problems. On the face of it, the one explanation that they will fall back on in the ultimate public inquiry, as you said, said, was that at the time they say they didn't realise that the disease could be transmitted asymptomatically. So people were being let out of hospital who didn't seem to be showing any symptoms, but were carrying covid But the other problem was that they only had the capacity to do several thousand tests a day when they needed a far greater capacity. So we knew that this was a disaster. We know that 30,000 people probably died in England's care homes, excess deaths as a result of COVID in that terrible period from March through to middle or end of April 2020. The big question is, did Matt Hancock pull the wool over everyone's eyes? Did he lie to people, which is Dominic Cummings' allegation, about the fact that people would be tested? Now, Hancock's explanation for that was he wanted to test everyone. And that's why he had to build up the testing capacity to do that. But he's contesting, or at least his recollection, as he put it, is that he said that he would test everyone when he had the capacity to do it. And that's the point of difference between the two. But nevertheless, I agree with you, Sir, that it's probably the most single serious allegation that Dominic Cummings brought to bear in that evidence
1: session. And when we've heard from Matt Hancock since then, he's obviously said we were trying to build up testing capacity, we were starting from a low base, but he hasn't quite fully come out and denied. And it's the same for Boris Johnson too. Neither of them are actually engaging in the specifics of what Dominic Cummings said. But if we just look at the general picture, Robert, that he was painting of the government, it was one of just total chaos. It really is extraordinary. When you look at how things were inside government, it is very strikingly that Helen McNara, who was the second most senior official within the cabinet office, walked into number 10 just days before lockdown and said, I've been told for years there is a plan. There is no plan. I think we're absolutely effed up and this country is heading for an absolute disaster. So there was. Obviously, problems with the prime minister and maybe with some of the judgments made. But there's also this deeper question of the British state not being prepared. Yeah, I think that's absolutely
4: key. I think you had the disastrous collision of an unserious prime minister and a dysfunctional state when it came to this crisis. All the planning, as we now know, was for a flu based pandemic. And that's not the pandemic we got. And that made an enormous difference to the way they were thinking for all that now seems clear about the right way to act. The scientific advice in the early weeks was nuanced. It wasn't precise at all. They were second guessing the way the public might respond to a lockdown if it was forced in too early. So one thing you have to say in Boris Johnson's defence in the very early days of this crisis is that he was not getting absolute definitive messages about what he needed to do before mid-March. Now, one can certainly argue that a more on it prime minister might have been asking more probing questions. And he clearly wasn't. He was stubbornly refusing to take the virus seriously. I mean, there was a moment where he said, well, maybe I should be injected with coronavirus myself live on television just to show how trivial it really is. So you had this collision of a dysfunctional state, a lack of readiness within the health service, preparing for the wrong thing, and a prime minister who wasn't prepared to take it seriously. And in the early months, that was disastrous.
1: But well, finally, George, where does all this leave us now? Because obviously, there's a lot of allegations here. We know Matt Hancock's going to do his own select committee turn in two weeks, where I'm sure he'll be hauled up on all this. And if you strip away the vitriolic rhetoric and the personal character attacks... The care homes is one thing of substance. Everything else we sort of already knew in a way. So it doesn't feel as if this is told us too much, except from the fact that obviously there were bad decisions made. It was very chaotic and that Johnson & Cummings had a big break. And We've obviously, of course, got that full inquiry, which will start next spring. And so far, Boris Johnson isn't budging on that. That's really when we'll start to hear the full picture from all the characters involved. Yeah, I mean, the public inquiry, which the Prime
3: Minister announced earlier in May, I think is the big thing that the government will hide behind, to put it cruelly, I suppose. You're right that Matt Hancock will have a difficult experience in early June when he goes before that health committee where they will be asking him specifically about some of the points that Dominic Cummings was making. But in the end, the government will say, look, we're setting up a public inquiry. It's going to be a serious inquiry into what happened. We're going to draw all the lessons that need to be learned from this. And in brackets, it's quite likely that this public inquiry won't report back before the next general election, by which time I suspect the pandemic will be quite a long way in the rearview mirror, at least hope so. So, I think that's probably where this is going to end up. I mean, it's going to be difficult. The ramifications of what Dominic Cummings said will last for a, a while to come. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if we continue to get a drip feed of other things in the media from Dominic Cummings over the weeks ahead. But in the end, I think the public want to move on from the events of 2020. And I suspect that's why the government thinks it can ride out this storm
1: and of course the one thing they have above everything else which is the vaccine program which as we've seen this week is picking your pace away across the country and i think when it all comes down to this people will say well yes mistakes were made but ultimately the ending of this saga hopefully is one where the uk was actually world beating if other things were i'm sure we'll be coming back to this again robert george thank you very much the UK's international aid budget was slashed due to the coronavirus pandemic, a move that may have proved popular with part of the Conservative Party and some voters in England, but had real, in some case, troubling consequences overseas. As the government attempted to push forward its agenda of global Britain and promoting British values abroad, some have said these cuts must be reversed. But there are questions about whether that's ever going to happen. During the budget, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, promised that the foreign aid budget would eventually go back to previous levels. I want to reassure the House
5: that we will continue to protect the world's poorest, spending the equivalent of 0.5% of our national income on overseas aid in 2021, allocating £10 billion at this spending review. And our intention is to return to 0.7% when the fiscal situation allows. Jasmine, welcome back
1: to the podcast. Now you've been doing some investigating with our FT colleagues across the world about the impacts the UK's foreign aid cuts have had, particularly in Africa. What have you
6: found? So one of the main concerns is the scope of the cuts. So you have these whole programmes that are planned for two or three years, essentially given 90 days notice that they won't be receiving any more government funding for the coming year. Or you have instances where charities and programmes have been told that 60% or 90% of their funding will now be scrapped. And so a lot of aid programmes are planned months and years in advance because to have any sort of impact, these programmes have to be long term. And so a lot of these organisations have really been left in the lurch, having to make quite brutal decisions about what areas of development should be prioritised. And there is this real sense that the government has made these sweeping cuts without a proper assessment of their impact on the ground.
1: Andrew Mitchell, it's a delight to have you on the podcast as obviously former International Development Secretary. When these cuts were made, I recall this is exactly what you warned about might
5: happen. What's been your sense of the impact they've had so far? Well, a very good example, of course, is the education promise where the Queen said in the Queen's speech recently that the government was very committed to ensuring that girls around the poorest parts of the world got 12 years of quality education. But if you pull out one string from that promise and you say that one particular year won't get funded, of course, you do huge damage to the programme because a girl who misses out on year seven can't just start again the next year in year eight. Also, there's been an over 80% cut in Britain's contribution to the family planning and contraception programme. That hits directly at some of the poorest and most unstable parts of the world. And take Mali, for example, a country which is of great worry to the security. People in Britain and in America, France has deployed troops there. We've deployed 200 troops there. But, of course, we've also cut the regional aid and development programme which provides opportunity and tries to build up governance and tries to attack conflict. And so the result of this is, with one hand, we're committing hard power, but with the other hand, we're taking away soft power, which emboldens the terrorist recruiter and makes their message one that gets a better reception. I think the girls' education example
1: is very potent, Jasmine, because that's something that's a personal priority of Boris Johnson, Prime Minister, and the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Ra. But as you reported this week from Africa, you can see that there is a lot of stuff that's just been abandoned, people have left, which is actually going against the UK's wider foreign policy
6: interests. I think there's a genuine sense that the short term savings that the government hopes to make, it doesn't really justify the potential long term impacts, um, especially in a continent such as Africa. So for example, one of the organisations I spoke to was working in South Sudan, and they said that one of their programmes, which was working to improve water and sanitation, had been suspended with immediate effect. Now, their argument was that sort of cut has a huge impact in a place like South Sudan, where parts of the region and um, the health system is quite fragile and quite reliant on funding for from overseas organisations, they also said that particular programme was working to combat disinformation surrounding vaccines. And they were worried about the impact of fighting the pandemic and boosting vaccine uptake with this programme now cut. And so the government has outlined its seven key priorities, among which you have girls education, you have global health security, tackling climate change, and at the same time is cutting these organisations that are trying to tackle these problems that the government insists that it is prioritising.
1: And now, Andrew, of course, the defenders of these cuts would say, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Something has to be cut from somewhere. And obviously, the UK still spends a lot more money than other countries do on international aid. And there is a sense the government might revert to it. Do you think it will? And what do you make of that argument about, well, you know, if you're going to have to cut something, this is the most obvious thing to do?
5: Well, everyone knows that's not true. Why? Because we're talking here of 1% of the money the government quite rightly spent combating COVID last year. It's 1%. And you shouldn't balance the books on the backs of the poorest people in the world. And especially if you've made a solemn promise on the floor of the United Nations and Every single member of the House of Commons, without exception, was elected on a manifesto promising to maintain this spending. It's absolutely the wrong thing to do. It's morally wrong, but it's hugely not in Britain's interests either. It's done terrible damage to the reputation we've built up around the world, quite apart from the huge damage which it's having on the ground. And I think it's a shameful thing to do. And I think the government will have to bring it back at some point. And large numbers of conservatives, too, who are very worried what it does to the Conservative Party's DNA by showing you're not really interested in development and this sort of internationalism. Very large numbers of us are waiting for the opportunity to oblige the government through a vote to think again. And at some point, I think we will get that opportunity. And the government will then be faced with the very real danger of losing on the floor of the House of Commons or seeing a massive rebellion from Conservative members of Parliament or promptly announcing, I hope, that they will bring it back. And the problem is that the Chancellor of the Exchequer has said that he'll bring it back when fiscal circumstances allow. But that's a statement which, you know, could go on forever. Indeed. And I think, Jasmine, there is an
1: interesting sort of shift in Conservative philosophy about this, because if you think back to when Andrew was International Development Secretary, that was all part of the project when David Cameron was trying to modernise the party, bring it into the 21st century and appeal to voters who are more in the centre ground, foreign aid and the plight, the words will maybe higher up their political radar, shall we say, than other parts. Whereas, of course, we've seen a big shift in the Conservative Party's voting base. It's gone a bit more populist in some of its and one of the things that struck me when those cuts were made, they will say, well, the people in my constituency matter the most. It might be quite short sighted,
6: but you can see why, in fact, there wasn't that much rebellion when they went through. I think naturally there are some within the party now who will always argue that the UK ought to be prioritising spending within the UK first, particularly within the context of a pandemic. But I think as well as pushback from Conservative backbenchers, there's a huge risk that the UK's reputation will actually be really damaged by this. We've now left the European Union and we're trying to reassert ourselves on the international stage. We're hosting G7 next month as well as COP26 climate talks in November. And so I think the UK is trying to get this message out that we're a reliable ally and we're an active player in international affairs, all the while cutting overseas aid at a time when many of the poorest countries need it the most. And so I think there's a huge difference between the government's rhetoric and the reality of the cuts. And Andrew, one of the things I have picked up, because of course, part of this is the
1: fact that the Department for International Development doesn't exist anymore. That one of Boris Johnson's early pledges was to shut down the department, roll it into the Foreign Office. And I get the sense from people I speak to within the newly merged Foreign Office that people aren't particularly happy at the situation. A lot of things have been thrown together and diplomats haven't got a clear sense about how Britain's diplomatic, its foreign aid and its commercial priorities all
5: align. Well, the scrapping of the Department for International Development was a catastrophic error of judgment. And it wasn't just that it was a bunch of extremely bright and talented civil servants, often with very extensive experience around the world, that led to the huge respect in which it was held. It was also that it was a real sort of engine of attacking the egregious extents of poverty because it brought together the great thinking from British universities and also some of these brilliant British led charities which have such effect upon the ground. And all the expertise has walked out of the door because of course this was not a merger. It was a complete scrapping of DFID. Even Mrs Thatcher, who was not a great fan of international development, she had a development department within the Foreign Office. There isn't even that now, so taking a sledgehammer to Britain's international reputation, you know, as a development superpower, really. This is taking place during the middle of a global pandemic which inevitably will really hit the poorest in the world hardest. But well, finally, Jasmine,
1: obviously, if you had someone from the government, they would say, well, of course, the world's poorest matters. Of course, global Britain matters. And we will focus on that. But ultimately, you've got to think things back at home. So I guess finally, do you think when you know, we get past the worst the economic effects, we're expecting a big boom in Britain's economy later this year, that Boris Johnson will try and raise that
6: level back up again? Well, I think certainly NGOs and charities, I mean, they would certainly want aid to be increased, but they haven't actually been given any sort of indication that that is the case. And they haven't been given any timescale as to how long these cuts will be in place. Mm -hmm. So I think... From Boris Johnson's perspective, he would probably be quite cautious in promising a return to the 0.7 commitment. And I think he would probably want to at least certainly give it a couple of months to see how the country's recovery from the pandemic goes, to see what the general mood is within the Conservative Party about this. So I think he'll be very cautious in promising anything knowing there are now some portions of the Conservative Party who are more than happy for us to reduce our spending overseas.
1: And finally, brief word, Andrew, what's your prediction?
5: Well, I think that the... Government will be nervous of any vote in the House of Commons, so to some extent we need a bit of good fortune. My colleagues and I don't really want to do a show of force or have a backbench motion which doesn't have any binding effect. We're looking for an opportunity which, by amending a bill, would enable us to bring back and reassert the law of the land, which is what it is. It's a 2015 development act which says that we're a generous country and we allocate 0.7% of our gross national income to help the poorest in the world. And why, as a rich country country particularly with the chairmanship of the g7 coming up in just a fortnight now we appear to be leading from the back remember that we are the only country in the g7 that is cutting aid all the others are increasing it or maintaining it the french are going to reach the 0.7 and the germans are going to spend more than 0.7 this year well jasmine andrew this
1: is a debate to keep watching and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also love positive ratings and nice reviews. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh de La The sound engineer was Sean McGarity. Until next week, thanks for listening.